0: You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series, an overview of Ayn Rand's ideas by Ankar
1: Ghatay, recorded as part of Ayn Con Europe 2021. Welcome. Good morning. Glad you can join us today on an early Saturday. So this is what I want to talk about today. Do you take your own life seriously? you take your own life seriously? This, I think, is underneath all the messages and the kind of content in Ayn Rand's novels. This is the one underlying theme, that for people who take the book seriously and for whom it has a real impact, there's an underlying question that the books raise, which is, do you take your own life seriously? And people who get inspired by the novels, whether it's Atlas Shrugged, The Fountainhead, Anthem, We the Living, I think this is the response that they have to the books and to the novels. And I I suspect this is the response many of you have had to the novels. It's certainly the response that I had. I read it when I was 16, 17, Atlas Shrugged. And the, the message you get from the book is that these characters, and particularly the protagonists or the heroes, in the novels take their own life seriously. They're trying to make something of their own life, and they see this as a real project, as a real quest that takes a lot of effort, takes a lot of energy, takes a lot of thought, and that if you're really dedicated to your own life, this is what you're prepared to do, and that people get inspiration from the novels. I think, above all else, the inspiration is, like, I want to be like these characters, I want to be like the heroes in the novels, and that to do that, you have to put in the effort, you have to put in the work. And one theme, I think, that runs through all the novels is that it's of paramount importance to take your own life seriously. Ayn Rand said um, in, in one of her essays that if you met a person as an adult, who takes the world and themselves as seriously as a young child does. When a young child is both exploring the world and exploring their own capacities and capabilities in the world, learning to walk, learning to talk, if you put that energy and effort that a child puts into the first two years of its life to master both the world in which it now inhabits and its own self and its own abilities, that you would meet a man of, of uh, genius. and you would. Be, but what it, it's about, it's about taking your own life seriously that this is, that, and that you can do this in your own life and that you should do this in your own life. Our PowerPoint seems to be fading in. Um, another perspective on that is that y- you should have the concern for your own life and to put in the energy and effort that it requires that all other living things do. And here's a picture of a, of a uh, plant growing in a pretty desolate environment. And yet it's struggling to survive, and it is surviving. And this kind of struggle, struggle not in the sense of pain, of disappointments, but struggle in the sense of, you think of an athlete learning to master his sport, It takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of effort, there are setbacks, it takes, um, it, it can hurt in the sense that it takes development. You fail, you get back up and you try again. This is what that life requires that when we watch documentaries on nature and so on, this is what we see other living things do. And this is what one can do in one's own life if you dedicate yourself to your own life. And above all else, what Ayn Rand is about, and so to give a kind of overview to her ideas, which is my assignment for this to to kick off this conference, to get an overview, I think the, the central thing that Ayn Rand is about is she's a moralist. She thinks carefully and deeply about issues of good and evil. So that to translate, if you're taking your own life seriously, what you should be taking seriously is the issue of good and evil, to try to understand these and to learn to navigate these, what it means to pursue the good, what it means to put yourself on the side of the good and what it means to avoid <coughs> evil, what it means to uh, see the world in terms of what's valuable and what is it, what will advance my life and what won't and why. And that from, from her first novel in We the Living, which is set, I mean, she's from Russia and is set in the the beginnings of Soviet Russia, the hero or heroine, uh, Kira, this is what you see, that she's, she's, her whole thought is oriented around what is good and what is evil, and I'm going to pursue the good, and I'm going to avoid the evil, and she's caught in a whole evil dictatorship. And it's, it's this whole orientation that Rand has from very early on to the end of her life and to the end of her thinking. The way it's put in Atlas Shrugged, kind of the deep um, final perspective on it, is that there's a, the way it's put it in the novel, is that there's a morality of life and a morality of death. That you can have a whole code of values and virtues that is dedicated to the advancement of life. And that what we actually have far too often in our thinking and in our education, and that's from what we get in school, from what we get from parents, from religious institutions, priests and preachers, and so on. What we get is actually advice that amounts to pushing us towards destruction and death. So she thinks there's two great forces loose in the world Um, and there's the force of life and the force of death and one needs to really learn to navigate these and to understand these and in particular that most of our thinking about good and evil is screwed up so what life requires if you're really taking it seriously is the willingness to rethink the issues of good and evil and to rethink them in a very deep way. And part of the reason she thinks, it's not the whole, but part of the reason she thinks that our thinking about good and evil, or putting it differently, our thinking about life and death is screwed up. And when I mean screwed up, that's like, she thinks the wires are all crossed. And what we think of as good is all too often evil. And what we think of as evil is all too often good. And part of the reason she thinks that this our thinking about good and evil is screwed up is that we, are, we live now in a culture and environment that has been saturated with religion, and particularly when we're thinking about the West, saturated with Christianity. And part of what Christianity taught is that this world and this life, your actual life, is a veil of tears, a realm of suffering, a place that it's you have to endure and bear it. And the real jackpot comes at death. And if you've lived a kind of life that you've accepted that you're a sinner and so on, and tried to do penance for it, you might ascend to heaven. But the, you get a kind of perspective that this world and this life um, is, lies on the side of evil destruction when you, when you achieve something, when you ascend to what's good, is when you die. So to say that it it crosses the wires, actual life, it puts in the realm of this is suffering, destruction, death. And actual death, it puts on the side of life. This is when now you actually ascend to what is good. Um, And so part of what it does is it removes the whole realm of values and of the good from this life. And she thought that this is it's one of the most destructive things that you can do to a developing human being and a developing human mind to say that the realm of values and of the good lies outside of this life and outside of this realm. And so part of her thinking is to bring back morality and the good and a pursuit of values to this life and to this world and into this realm. Um, and so, one manifestation of the fact that she thinks our, the wires have been crossed, and what we think of as what we should think of as life, we think of a, on the side of suffering, destruction, death. And what we should think of as death, we think of as oh no, now we're ascending to heaven and we've hit the jackpot. Part of that, that this is all screwed up in our thinking, is that the options that we think of, that we have in life, the choices, particularly choices about good and evil, about right and wrong, about what's valuable and not, the choices are often um, both wrong, and it, it doesn't have to be, there's only two choices, but the choices and the options we're offered are wrong, and they're all wrong. And what if you're really taking your life seriously and willing to think about the issue of good and evil, you're ready to think ready to challenge all the options and take a door that hasn't been offered. And part of what, I think, one way to look at what Ayn Rand's whole ideas and whole thinking is about is she carves out options that weren't thought available before. Um, So she will often, when presented with uh, choices, will say, none of the above. There's something different and there's something better. And particularly in the realm of values, it's that she thinks, no, there's a different way to approach life. And there's a different and better way to approach life. And if you're really taking your own life seriously and want to make something out of it, make something out of your years on this earth, you have to be able to rethink this and carve out different options. So that, in terms of giving an introduction to her ideas, this is what I want to just focus on, some areas in which what, the way she thinks about the whole area and what's good and what's evil in that area of what's valuable and what isn't is that, that the way she's thinking about it in effect is the options were offered, you should say none of the above to these and I want something different and I'm going to seek something different. And let me start off with uh, one, which is the issue of pride. So for Ayn Rand, pride is a virtue. Indeed, it's the sum of the virtue, that if you're taking your own life seriously, what you need and what it requires is a real dedication. It requires taking pride in your own life and in your whole quest to make something out of your life. So what we're typically told in regard to pride is you've got two options. You've got the the proud. Why is pride a sin? Because it's viewed as you're you're now going to you're going to lure lord over people. You're going to exploit them. You're above them. They're below you. They're beneath you. Pride is typically thought of as arrogance, and the alternative is humility. So instead of lording over people, you're to bow to them. You're to not think, well, yeah, I'm not important. I don't count. Other people do. Purview is, like, both of these are wrong. What we're offered is what supposedly is pride is wrong. And what we're offered as an alternative of humility. So the idea that you've got two choices in life. You can be arrogant um, and a kind of SOB, or you can be humble, humility, not think, yeah, there's nothing important about me. Um, I don't take myself seriously. Why should you? That kind, of, this kind of humility, this kind of erasing yourself out of existence, in effect. She thinks both are wrong, and from a fundamental perspective, they're both wrong because they're too tied to other people. That, so the third of a, of a symbol of actual pride, of someone who's taking seriously their own life, their own character, of making something out of that, doesn't see it as in relationship to other people. So it's not about either I'm going to bow to other people or I'm going to try to lord over other and think of myself as superior to other people. What pride is about and about taking your life seriously, it's about your relationship to the world or your relationship to reality, as Ayn will often put it, that if you're trying to make yourself into a person who's capable of succeeding, living in the world, of enjoying it, of reaching happiness in the world, and that's not, it's not essentially a relationship to other people, whether it's you're gonna to bow to them or you're gonna think of yourself as superior to them. But she thinks of pride as a virtue. And it, indeed, as I say, it, like, if you're taking your life seriously, it's the crown or the sum of virtues. Pride means that you're ambitious, but ambitious for life and ambitious for making yourself into the kind of person who deserves and is worthy of life are worthy of happiness. And that that takes real effort, real achievement and a real dedication. And that what pride is a virtue is the willingness and the eagerness to engage in that effort and engage in that task. Um, So she thinks of it as a virtue, but the way that she conceptualizes it is, yeah, the way that we're taught to think about this issue is wrong. And if you're gonna take your life seriously, you need to be willing to say, yeah, what we're offered is wrong. There's a different way of looking at life. And that's what one should adopt and that one, one should take. And this, 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 um, that what she does is reformulate all kinds of issues into to say like the, the choices we're offered are wrong. We need a new and different alternative. That is what her, her thinking is about. And why she developed the whole philosophy then is that she did this on issue after issue of willing to rethink what you could put it as con- the conventional wisdom, to rethink that and propose different alternatives. And when she did that for a whole host of issues and seeing these issues as they're interconnected, it's what you do is you're developing a new philosophy. And by the end of her thinking, what you get is a new philosophy and a new approach to life, which she called objectivism, but it comes through thinking about um, different issues of value and often, as I say, reformulating what our options and choices are. So what I want to do for the next little bit is just take a few of the issues in her thought or in her thinking, or you can put it in the end, in her philosophy, objectivism, and just stress that what she's doing is rethinking issues and saying, if you're really dedicated to life and to value, there's a different option to take than what we're normally offer. So then here, one is in, in regard to pride. <clears throat> Another is in regard to career. So she thinks if you're taking your own life seriously and you wanna make something of your time on this earth, these central activity, the central activity of living for human beings is producing, is working is creating the values that your life requires from being able to earn enough to eat and live and house yourself to the whole host of activities that you do your recreational activities your friendships all this has to be created but the central activity if we're thinking of if of a human life the central activity is your career is your work so she doesn't think of it as work is a rat race, we're in this thing, we wish we were out of it, Um, we live for the weekend, we live for the um, drinking on the weekend, and so that she thinks that kind of attitude towards work and towards career is uh, an attitude that comes from not taking life seriously, not taking what the requirements of life are seriously. And again, part of this comes from religious approach that it is if if you think of what the projection of heaven is or heaven of heaven on earth the garden of eden it's a life in which you don't have to work you don't have to strive you don't have to engage in effort you don't have to think everything is given to you that's the image of like that's what if life were like that that'd be great but it's not like this Um, and so we have to work and so in, in the whole religious tradition, it's you're condemned to work. This is when they fall, Adam and Eve fall out of the Garden of Eden. What they're condemned to do is they have to work, they have to produce. And this kind of view of, the, of human life then has permeated for centuries, that work is a burden. And the, the view that you get from Ayn Rand, and the view certainly that you get in the novels, from the characters, the heroes, in the novels, is the seriousness with which they take their work and which they take their career, that they're going to build a career, that they're going to find the work that really engages them, find the work that they love to do that's worth doing, and then engage in the task of doing it and engage in Like This is a long-term task in which you develop, in which you grow, in which you um, increase your ability. So in terms of thinking about the whole of life, career and work plays a central uh, role in it. And it, again, she said that the options of the way we're taught to think about work as, yeah, it's a kind of a hassle, a burden. It would be better if we didn't have to do it, but I guess you have to do it. So that is, she thinks that like, this is a way of really, of, of um, both not taking your life seriously and not taking the whole realm of value seriously—that if you want value in life, you have to work for them. and that should be the—you should eagerly embrace that, versus yeah, this is uh, this is I reluctantly do this because I don't want to die. Um, so in terms of thinking about values, career plays a central role in the whole of objectivism, and the in uh, particularly objectivist ethics. Underneath that is the whole approach to it. Um, So a a common choice that we're told we have to make in life is, are you going to side with your heart or are you going to side with your head? Are you going to side with your thinking or are you going to side with your emotion? Are you going to be on the, in the realm of facts, or are you going to be concerned with value? And it's like there's, it's that these are split. There's some kind of dichotomy between these things. And, Ayn Rand's view, I mean, and symbolized in popular culture, is for those who've seen the old, original Star Trek, the characters of Spock, he's on the side of facts, science, so he doesn't have values, he doesn't have emotions, and his sort of antithesis in the show is the doctor, Dr. McCoy, uh, nicknamed Bones, who always flies off the handle. He has values, he has emotions, but he's not that clear a thinker, he's not logical, and so... And it's, you're presented as like, this is what you have to choose in life. Which are you going to be? And Ayn Rand's view again is, no, none of these. They're both wrong. The idea that um, if, you're, if you're a logical, rational thinker, you don't have values, you don't have emotions, you don't have passions. You thought that, like, that's bizarre. And on the other side, that, that, it, that, that, that if you are interested in values or you're interested in your emotions, you're interested in your passion, that you have to approach those in a non-thinking, non-logical way. She thought that that's crazy too. Like if these, if your these are your choices, then you're going to make a bad choice. You have to rethink this issue and have a view that you can have facts and values that go together. You can have thinking and emotions that go together. You can have logic and passion, both and at once. And again, in terms of her characters, And in terms of the novel, I think this is something that impresses people when they first read it. And you might not be able to put it fully into kind of verbal form. But if you ask the the characters of Kira and We the Living, or Howard Rourke in The Fountainhead, or of Dagny Taggart in uh, At the Shrugged, and I I think most people have read at least one of the novels here, they're both both, um, real careful thinkers who go by reason, who go by logic, who go by the fact. And they're incredibly passionate about what they do and how seriously they take it and the value that they see in what they're doing. If you're thinking in Atlas Shrugged of Dagny running railroads, she's really, really good at it. She can think through all kinds of problems. And when you get the first kind of third of the story, she's facing all kinds of problems, difficulties on the line. The company is sort of on the verge of collapse. And she's figuring out what to do, and she's thinking the issues through. But she's passionate about it, about what the value of railroads is, of what the work that she's doing, of why it's advancing life. So she's simultaneously on the side of logic and on the side of passion, on the side of facts, on the side of value. Indeed, what you get in objectivism is that values just are a perspective on facts that a value is a fact that has a beneficial role in your life. You evaluate something as it's valuable to me. It's something in the world, it's a fact in the world, whether it's food, whether it's shelter, or whether you take a more abstract value like a career, that this is something that actually will advance my life. I value it because of that, and then it becomes a value in my life. So this idea that you get, and it's all over today's culture, that you have this kind of choice, of science or the arts, of facts, values, of thought or emotion. She thinks, no, th- th- these these are defective choices. And what you need to do is rethink the issue and develop a third alternative. And this is part of what she offers in both her novels and the nonfiction is a way to think of how you can unite thought and emotion of fact and value. Um, so, so this is another element that is crucial to the the her whole world view and the whole world view of objectivism so her idea that, uh, that I put up a scientist here that a scientist is not passionate about what they're doing about discovering the truth about moving things forward and discovering new cures in medicine and medicines so on as though like that's a dry factual thing for which you should have no evaluation no emotions no passion for that. again she thought like that's bizarre if you have that kind of view Um, let me take an issue deeper in philosophy. We're told in terms of thinking, what it means to think, what it means to um, really engage with the world. We're taught often now that there's an element that it's completely arbitrary. Um, And this is particularly in regard to the the definitions and the concepts we use, that definitions are made up. And the concepts that we use, the language that we use, the words that we use, are made up. And they can be, well, they're made up by me, they're made up by some authorities, they're made up by society at large. You look in the dictionary and that tells you what a definition is, but they're just made up. And her view is that this. if this is your view of what thinking is, then you don't really understand what thinking is. So one of the deepest lessons you get From Ayn Rand, is a willingness to to challenge and to rethink our concepts, the words, the language that we use, and that there is a right and wrong in regard to these. A lot of the cultural issues that we have today are about reformulating definitions, whether it's um, the so called uh, woke attitude that is redefining what racism means. Um, that it used to be discrimination on the basis of race or of skin color. Now it's, 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 the push is to think of it as whenever there's a difference in outcome that you can, tra- can, you can cast in some kind of racial or skin color way, that's evidence and proof of racism, or that's what racism is. And the more you think of a definition as just, well, someone makes it up. It's arbitrary. There's no right and wrong about this. There's no way to challenge this. It. it you get you get a growing um, kind of consensus in the culture, or at least in academia, that this is how we're gonna define racism now. And then like that's the end of the story. And her view is that no, if you really take thinking seriously and thinking as then as a path to trying to figure out what the world is like how I'm gonna navigate my life in it, how I'm gonna discover values in it. You need to be able to really understand what a concept is, where definitions come from, and they're not made up. There's a reason we need definitions. Um, they tell us what it is that we're grouping in reality, and why, that why to think these things are similar, we should think of them in the same way. And, so, and she has, I'm not gonna go into the details of the theory, but a whole theory of the way in which definitions work and the, the idea that they're just made up and it, what made up, whether it's by an individual, by a group or by society at large, you think that is, you have no understanding of the actual tools that you're using to think if you think like that, and if you think of that uh, of a concept and a definition as arbitrary. So so from the realm of, of values, to the realm of career, to the realm of thinking of what is the relationship between thought and and values or thought and emotions of facts and values. She's, in all these areas, she's asking us to rethink things and she's proposing alternatives that are not among the alternatives that we're given as this is what you can choose between. Um, So part of what her whole thinking is about is carving out new ways of looking at the world. Um, okay, so let me. Uh, the, these are some at the the level of thinking of about your indili- individual life. Let me skip ahead here now to think about some um, at a at a at a more cultural level. One of the central things that you get in objectivism and from Ayn Rand's thinking. And again, from the perspective of, if you're taking life seriously, is a whole perspective on modern achievements, modern life, you can think of it as industrial civilization. So to put it, to understate it, she is pro-industrial civilization. What we're typically given now, today, is These are the kind of options and alternatives that we face. There's a projection of what it means to live in harmony with nature, which is like a kind of garden of view, uh, uh, a view of life. That pre-industrialization, pre-the last two centuries, when we live closer to nature, it was a kind of Shangri-La, that everybody was doing well that you could f- frolic in nature, grab berries and food and water and so on, and everyone live free of disease. <clears throat> and the, the, I mean, if you go back, like this is the garden of view of what life was like before the fall. Um, there's this kind of projection of what it is like to live in nature and that what industrial man has done has polluted his environment has destroyed it, has brought not good into the world, but evil. He's a person who destroys and smashes things. This is the, I mean, I think in terms of cultural movements today, the dominant movement is environmental. And this is what environmentalism teaches. And it teaches from, it takes kids in kindergarten up into graduate school. And it's this view of human life. And this view is, it is a hundred percent wrong. It's a hundred percent wrong. If you look at the earth today, and if you look at industrial industrial civilization, and if you look at it from the point of view of human life, there's never been more people who are living longer with a higher standard of living than there is today. And like the, in, it's an orders of magnitude in terms of the people who are now on the earth, the amount of wealth that has been created and has been created by these people, and as a result, the length and quality of life that people live today. And that's, that includes places like India and China, which have seen massive transformations in the last 30, 40, 50 years. And these transformations are the result of industry coming into these places coming into china coming into india that they were compared to what they were 50 or 60 years ago relatively more free relatively more able to build wealth to engage in production so, than they were it's not a whole aid campaign that has has lifted them out of poverty it's they've lifted themselves out of poverty through work through production through an emphasis on career and building something. And the result is that life has never been better on Earth. And yet, if you ask the average um, person and the average student, whether in grade school, high school, or college, if you ask them, like, what is the state of life, of human life on the planet today? It's we're one minute from catastrophe. And that there's no there's no scientific argument that leads to that. This is a view of thinking of that there's something wrong with production, with creation, that life should be like a Garden of Eden. It's not. Um, and when the people who have br- brought it to that it's not, they're the destroyers. They're destructive. And we need to bring an end or a stop to this or at least uh, a significant uh, rolling back of it and from the point of view of human life there really there's not an iota of truth to this kind of view and that it, even if you think there's problems of pollution in in various places and so on it's incontrovertible that if from if you're looking on a global scale that human life has never been better and to not acknowledge that fact, is to not acknowledge the past two centuries of human development. So she, she has an incredibly positive view of the modern world of industrial civilization and all that leads to it. And that if you're taking your life seriously, you need to reorient your values that what we're being taught and have been taught for decades and decades about thinking about the world of industry and the world of business is, it's 100% wrong. And this leads then to an attitude um, to, she has a view of business, that this is a very distinctive view of hers, that there's very few, if any thinkers, who treat businessmen, who treat a Steve Jobs, not as a criminal or a crook, and not someone who just is a paper pusher fills out forms, says, it's the workers who do everything, um, the CEO doesn't do anything. Her view is that these people, the leaders in business, and I mean, you can think of the modern technological, the internet age of someone like a Steve Jobs, but you can go back in history in a, of a Rockefeller or JP Morgan, of the industrialists at the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, that these, People are responsible for the modern life. They're responsible for the fact that we, that, that, that work has been transformed, that we have careers that 50, 60 years ago, you're a computer programmer, you're an IT specialist, and these jobs didn't even exist. The whole modern world, above all else, has been brought into existence, not by science and technology, but by the people who took science and technology and made a human environment with it, who built the thing, who built the hotels like this, air conditioning, heating, on and on, electricity and so on. Who has brought it that it's we now today, the average person enjoys these things? It's businessmen. Um, And if you're taking your life seriously, and if you're really taking the issue of value seriously, and of good and evil seriously, that warrants a, an evaluation and a moral evaluation. It warns that to view these people as heroes, not just as, oh yeah, they're pretty productive. And yeah, they brought a lot of things into existence. That would already be an improvement versus the attitude that people have towards businessmen today. Um, but it's it's not simply that. It's to say, this is a moral achievement. That what these people have done in their careers and in what is best about their careers is they've dedicated themselves to the pursuit of values and to the pursuit of what is good. And that that is the essence of what life is about. It's a moral achievement. They've done it in their own lives. They've helped people do it in their lives. So part of what they are is that they're traitors Um, and that they've lifted themselves up and they've lifted everyone else up. And this requires that a, if you're taking morality seriously, and if you're taking your own life seriously, this requires a moral evaluation that is 180 degrees opposite from what today's culture is. The, the, it's hard to um, underestimate how badly businessmen and businesswomen are treated. If any other class of human beings was treated like this today, there would be outrage about it. That the it, When you look and it, you can do this just, there's studies that have been done on this, but you can do this just, if you spend a week watching television and movies, and you just watch what you have been watching, and record how many times the villain, the crook, the bad guy in the thing is a businessman, it's astonishing when you see that. And there have been studies of this, like they're, they're, it's more often that businessmen kill people than mafia gangsters and so on in movies and television. It has no relationship to real life, but it has a relationship to the way we're taught to think about moral values and about people and about what they do and what is required. If you're again, if you're taking values and the good in your own life seriously, is a radical reorientation uh, to this and to the whole modern world. And part of that, in the deeper philosophical perspective on this, is what we're told. Our options in life are is to be selfish or selfless and to be selfish is to be ready to stab people in the back to exploit them to looking for any angle that you can take advantage of people it's you're gonna sacrifice other people to yourself that's what it means to be selfish and to be selfless is to um, to martyr yourself to give up to surrender to do what Jesus did on the cross which is, yeah, I'm the height of virtue, but I'm willing to give up my life for the sake of sinners. That's what it means to be selfless. That's what it means to be good. This is the portrait in various ways of what it means to be good. And part of the argument is, well, you don't want to be the other guy. You don't want to be stabbing people in the back. You don't want to be exploiting people. Really, you're willing to do that with your life. And if you're not, well, your alternative is to be selfless and to give up, to surrender, to sacrifice and her view again is this is a defective uh, alternative in in the Fountainhead it was it's put it, it towards the end of the Fountainhead is that we're told that masochism is the ideal because sadism is the alternative you either have to give up sacrifice or you're going to be willing to kill people it's like damage destruction pain on people and her view is no there's a radically different mode of life and that's a mode of life that is what your, your relationship to other people is to engage in trade, is that you create things, they create things, and you exchange when it's, you're willing to do that, when it's beneficial to both parties. And again, the businessman is the exemplar of trade, of what a life of trade looks like, of what it meant to get outside the past centuries. The past centuries had been centuries of exploitation of people killing people, trying to take advantage of people. Um, What the modern world brought into existence is there's a radically different way in which to engage, in which to live. And it's not exploitation, but it's also not sacrifice. It's trade. Um, And that is her symbol for leading a life and your interactions with other people. And it's way beyond economic interaction. It's what you should be and strive to be in life is a trader. And so she brings to the, 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 the a whole perspective on the modern world of what makes it moral and what makes it an achievement is the centrality of trade to the whole modern way of life. And she thinks of that, the, um, it, it's certainly at a material level, but it's at a spiritual level As well so the perspective on love that you get in uh, objectivism and in Ayn Rand is love is a trade love is exchange love is not synonymous with selflessness of erasing yourself out of existence and thinking just of the other person and what they require and what they want that is not love she thinks of love and selflessness as opposite love is about pursuing what you value in life, of getting something in a relationship. It's not about um, surrender or selflessness. And again, it's religion that has pushed that love is all. Love is charity. Love your neighbor. Love even your enemy. That's the type of virtue. Do you get anything from it, from loving your neighbor or loving a stranger? No. Do you get anything from loving your enemy? No. You lose but the point is, well, if you're going to exhibit real virtue and be concerned with the good, you'll be willing to do that. I don't think this is perverse, and it's a perverse view of love. It throws love in the trash can. What love is about is about seeking your own values, your own happiness in the person of another. So it's a real exchange. And one of the ways that Ayn Rand put this is, if someone in their vows, when they're getting married, said to the, their partner, yeah, I don't get anything from you. You make me miserable. This is a sacrifice for me. I'm giving it up. I mean, yeah, I'm giving up my happiness. There's 20, 30 years of uh, misery. But look, that's what love is about. And this is what it's virtue. And it's I'm willing to love a stranger and love an enemy, love someone I don't like, that I get nothing from. This is like, what could I offer you that's greater? And the, you know, the partner would rightly find this um, so irrational and so evil that when you think about what and why you want love in your own life, it is precisely because it aids and it's a, it's really an irreplaceable value in life. So she thinks of it as, again, the, the way we're taught about how to think about love, what its place in life is, is wrong. Um, and it, like it's, it's 180 degrees from the way properly to think about life and to think about value. So in looking at Ayn Rand's ideas and looking at objectivism, the, the central issue, I think, is she's rethinking issues of good and evil. She's rethinking how to think about values in life, what it means to pursue them. What it looks like, what that effort looks like to engage in that task. um, Why it requires a real dedication and a real pride to do this. And that this is what life, if you're taking your life seriously, this is what it's about. It's a quest for values. But part of that quest means rethinking the issue of good and evil. Rethinking the issue of values. Because so much of what we're taught about what's good and what's evil, what is valuable, and what isn't is incorrect. And what objectivism then amounts to is putting this into um, formal terms. So to to give an kind of overview of what objectivism and Ayn Rand's ideas are, this is a way to think of it in more systematic form, that it's the, the central ideas and the central values in objectivism are At at a kind of political level, it is about capitalism, which is the system of trade, system of systematic trade in which people have been liberated, that they can pursue their own lives and happiness and trade with other people. Underneath that is a kind of individualism, um, an emphasis on the individual, the requirements of his life, of what it means to live an individual life. What that requires is taking the, your own good as the end, to put it in, in, in um, uh, more familiar terms, the way it's put in the Declaration of Independence. It's about the pursuit of happiness, which means the pursuit of your own happiness. That that is what life is about. What it requires is thinking, a life of thinking and acting which is what the whole emphasis on reason, thought, logic in Ayn Rand is. And what that requires is to initiate thought. And these, these and the contrast, there's a whole contrasting perspective to this, and I've put up uh, some elements of this, but let me just emphasize the positive. The, the, it's, this amounts to a whole approach to values and to life. And this is what we'll be talking about now in the rest of the conference. Yaron's talk will be centered on the the issue and value of capitalism. Uh, Nikos will be talking about individualism in contrast to tribalism. We live in an increasingly tribal age, what it means to be um, uh, immune to those forces and pressures in the culture. Aaron and Keith will be talking about the issue of self-interest versus self-sacrifice, that's all today. Tomorrow, Aaron will be talking about the issue of reason versus faith, and I'll be talking about the issue of free will. Ayn Rand is one of the only thinkers in the 20th century who is on the side of free will in a non-religious sense. He thinks free will is part of the natural scientific world, and we'll talk about that tomorrow, because the whole emphasis of in objectivism is, to go back to a slide I had, is there's good and there's evil. And what life is about is choosing the good and avoiding the evil. But that really means choosing it, that you have the power of choice. And we'll talk a little bit about that tomorrow. Um, so this is in terms of both an overview of what objectivism is about, and then what, so why we're talking about what we're talking about later in the, cult, uh, in, in the conference. This is what our focus Will be uh, now. I haven't. There's no clock up here. What, Nikos? Do you know what time it is? Okay. Yeah. So let me let me draw a line here. You certainly can ask about the other side of the statism, collectivism, self-sacrifice. This, these are the dominant ideas in the culture today, of which objectivism saying, is saying they're defective, and you need to choose a different option than any of these. So let me So let me draw a line here and take a few questions about uh, either what I've been talking about or objectivism more generally. Yeah, thanks. Thank I think we're using the mics for questions. So uh, who's going to be the brave first person? To... OK. Well, just let me check. Can live stream pick this up or what? Do I need to repeat the question then? Okay, okay. So try to make it as succinct as possible if I have to repeat. You need them to go. Okay. So, anyone who wants to ask questions, please line up by the mics. Oh, okay. Sorry. Do you want to come up? Okay, oh, well, hot mic. Okay, so, um, real quick, I just think it might be helpful if you define
0: what evil is and how that relates to the epistemology of reason. If you could please.
1: We'll be talking about some of that tomorrow, but let me take the first part of it, of just the issue of evil. It's if what values are about is about advancing one's own life, then what the evil is, is the thing that doesn't advance your own life and indeed either retards it, destroys it. Um, but it, just, it can just be that it, it, so it doesn't have to destroy it completely. It undermines. Um, and it, it's it, a way to think about it is to think about other living things. We have a perspective, not of good and evil, on other living things, but a perspective of good and bad. We don't have a perspective of good and evil because we don't think of other living things as choosing, as choosing something and or defying the need for choice. But we have a perspective of good and bad. I put up the plant in one of the early slides. And if you ask, um, is sunlight good or bad for the plant? It's good for the plant. Is water good or bad for the plant? It's good for the plant. Is a drought, and I was putting it's condition, it's certainly drought-like, the conditions look like there. Is a drought good or bad for a plant? Well, it's bad for a plant because it's putting it, it's making it harder and harder for the plant to live. And eventually, like if the drought is too long and too severe, the, the plants die. They don't have water and they die. So the the perspective on values in objectivism is what's true of lo- other living things is true of human beings as well things are good and things are bad things advance human life in your own life or they retard and eventually can destroy your life and again to take something i put up in terms of industrial civilization the whole perspective is it good or bad and her perspective it's good because it is advanced life in an un dreamt of way prior to the industrial revolution revolution and industrial civilization nobody could project li- like life with air conditioning heating computers that you video conference with someone um across the globe and so on you take the science fiction from 200 300 years ago they don't even can't even dream of this kind of thing um, and yet now it, it's a daily reality and we get, I mean, we complain when oh, the zoom connections are not working. and We can't connect with someone across the globe. And we, we just take it for granted. But if you're thinking of it in terms of moral terms, is it good or bad? It's good. And the people then pushing that, well, let's get rid of industry and let's get back to nature. And if you really take seriously what life was like in nature when there was no industry, um, And if you ask, like, is that pro-life or anti-life? It's anti-life, it's something bad. And then if you're taking it as evil, there's the question of, okay, if someone telling me to hell with industrial civilization, let's get back to nature. Do they know what they're saying? Do they understand? Have they read any book about what life was like 500 years ago or 600 years ago? And if they have, and have some understanding of what life really was like in nature and they're still telling you to go back to nature it, or is what they're doing good or is what they're doing evil and the perspective in for mine rand which i agree with is yeah they're doing something evil so the 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 good and evil is a perspective on life and what advances human life but it's a perspective on what people are choosing in regard to their values of what they think you should go after and what you think you should avoid. And so part of what it means to say that objectivism is asking you to rethink issues in, of good and evil, it's that what people are saying is pro-life and what they're telling you to choose and what they're choosing is actually destructive. Okay. On the first hand, um looking at the statement that the goal should be having a good life in this world seems so common sense so why do you think in like across human history like the bad ideas or like anti-life ideas were so sticky and so prevalent across human history is it a process we had to go through or was there another optionality it's not a process you had to go through in the way that we went through it um and the way that it, we're t- talking about Western civilization, the way that it went through it. So there is, you say it's common sense. Well, it's not exactly common sense. Th- to say that it's true is not the same thing to say that it's common sense. So you have a whole view for long periods of time that the war- the reality is divided into two. And there's a supernatural realm. And the, that, it's like true life really resides up there. And so a religious view like that, it's there's reasons why... In in primitive, uh, more primitive civilizations, religion dominates. So it's an achievement to get to a view that says, no, that is all wrong. Um, it's it's make believe. There's reasons we held this, but they're not good reasons. And we need a view that is much more that is just oriented towards this world, secular, and so. On. I think that's what you get with the. I mean, part of the achievement of ancient Greece in Western civilization. Is to get to this kind of view, and it's not common sense, though I think it is true. What you then get is a rebellion against that, and that did not have to happen. So the reason why it's it's that achievement of the uh, that I think of as the Greek achievement doesn't endure. They're not fully able to defend it, and there's a whole onslaught against it, which is Christianity. And Christianity didn't have to happen, but it did happen. And I and mean, when you re- read the Christian thinkers, they're knowingly attacking the achievements of ancient Greece. Um, And that, in terms of good and evil, that warrants a certain evaluation that is not good, but evil, that what these people did. It didn't have to happen, but it did. And they won for many centuries. So that's part of the explanation. Yeah, let's take the last question. Hello. Hello.
0: My question is uh, as you say before, uh, love is an answer of own values. Realize can you go
1: a little closer to the mic, I'm A little up there.
0: Uh, it's an answer of the, of our own values uh-huh. uh, reali- realized in another person. So uh, in the Iron Lovers, we can see may, many characters, the the heroes uh, that realize proper uh, that have properly this answer in another person, but altruistic have this. Uh, have uh, also the same uh, answer of their own values uh, in another person, and I wanted to uh, uh, to know what you think, uh, what uh, what they feel. They're altruistic uh, people. If they feel love for another and what they really, uh, you, what you think re- they really f- uh, feel about.
1: Okay. So what do altruistic people feel in regard to love? I think it depends how altruistic they are. So you can have someone who espouses a certain moral view but doesn't actually live it. Um, And then they can have some genuine relationships where the relationships actually are trades. They actually are getting something from it. It's inconsistent with the view that love should be about being selfless. Love should be about giving up. But the more they take that seriously and are actually trying to live that, I don't think they have anything like the experience of love. They don't have any, it's not actual love. And you were asking about the novels. Um, you could, one of the one of the characters to look at in regard to this is uh, in The Fountainhead, Ellsworth to his niece, Catherine, who tries to implement a view that yeah what love is about is supposed to be i'm supposed to love strangers equally to anybody else she's in an actual relationship but n- neither of the two actually pursues it and does what's required to have it and she becomes more and more oriented to yeah my whole life should be about others she becomes a social worker to minister to and what she finds is yeah i don't i don't experience love I don't really even like these people. I sort of resent my whole life and what I'm doing. And I think that is what happens when it is when when you think of love as effacing myself out of existence. Only the other person counts. Um, to the to the extent that a person is still has any aspect that they're trying to live, they find that as like this is torture. What I'm doing is erasing myself out of existence. And to take a non-fictional example of this. You can read about Mother Teresa, and the idea that she experiences love, I think, is a joke. And I think she, like, she doesn't experience. When you read what her, some of her diaries and so on, it's it's a life of pain, resignation, loss, and that, that this is noble, because this is what we're supposed to do. It's not about me. It's not about my self-interest. It's not about my happiness. Um, and that is the, the, the that when you don't view love as a trade, I think that is the end point if you're taking it consistently. Okay, so let's draw a line here. And we have, what, now a half-hour break?
0: Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.